Well, we're in Exodus, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5 today. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn there. You know, at the burning bush, we saw a few weeks ago that God called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And then he sent Moses to the Israelites. And he gave him specific instructions regarding that journey to them and about his journey on to the court of Pharaoh after that. Now, God warned Moses that you're going to go to Pharaoh, but it's not going to work. And we saw last week that he reiterated that warning in chapter 4 and verse 21. We also saw last week that things went really well when Moses came to the Israelites. There was a display of faith as they worshipped God together. The wheels, indeed, are in motion. But, we're still in first gear. So today, we're going to see Moses and Pharaoh squaring off in round one. So let's read, let's pick up though in chapter 4, verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he performed the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshipped. And afterward Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Otherwise, he will strike us with plague or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you let the people neglect their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. Right away we see faith on the part of Moses and unbelief displayed by Pharaoh. Moses' faith is a courageous faith. Well, Pharaoh's unbelief is a rebellious unbelief. Pharaoh demonstrates his unbelief by posing the central question of Exodus. Who is the Lord? The book of Exodus contains multiple themes that are divinely interwoven into answering this very question. The Israelites don't really know Yahweh except as a God who's made them promises. The Egyptians certainly don't know him, and why would they care to know him? Why would they pay attention to the God of a bunch of slaves? As we journey through Exodus, we are seeing how Yahweh reveals himself to the Israelites and to the Egyptians and ultimately to the entire world. Pharaoh asked the question, that every one of us and everyone throughout history has to answer. 
Who is the Lord? How we answer that question has eternal consequences. One of the first things we can note here is how forceful and courageous Moses and Aaron were before Pharaoh. Where does that come from? This is the same Moses who tried to cover up a murder, who ran away from Pharaoh. This is the same Moses who tried repeatedly to get out of being God's messenger. And this same Moses walks right into Pharaoh's palace and proclaims, Thus says the Lord. What has happened? What's changed? Well, we know that that Moses has met with Yahweh. Moses saw God's glory at the burning bush. He heard Yahweh announce that he would save the people. God's call is on his life, and it's been authenticated by miraculous signs. And God's call came on his life in spite of his protestations, in spite of his perceived inadequacies. Well, or maybe because of those inadequacies. Moses though, still had some trouble believing. And he may have been kind of reluctant to start that journey back to Egypt, but he obeyed. And each step closer to Egypt, each step was another step in trusting Yahweh, believing the promises that God had made. You see, Moses stepped out in faith. And when faith is exercised, Faith will grow. A similar thing happened to Jesus' disciples. From the way they're described in the Gospels, they are not the guys I would have chosen to change the world. But they had been with Jesus. And only a few short weeks after his death, the disciples went from cowering behind closed doors to boldly proclaiming the Gospel, uh, the good news of salvation, throughout Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders, the same ones who had crucified Jesus, they were amazed by the disciples' boldness. We can read about that in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now when they, those leaders, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The disciples had been with Jesus, and it was life-changing. Moses had been with Yahweh, and it was life-changing. It is life-changing to encounter God. And that's the experience of everyone who believes in Christ as Savior and Lord. When we allow the good news of Jesus to enter our hearts, the Holy Spirit changes us. It starts on the inside and it works its way out. When people see a difference, when they wonder what's happened to us, there's only one answer. We've met with God and He has transformed us. If you haven't already encountered God, there's no better time than today. If you've experienced that transforming encounter, What are you doing to exercise your faith? Now, in spite of Moses' courageous faith, 
it did not go well with Pharaoh that first meeting. There are at least three things that Moses didn't do correctly in this encounter with Pharaoh. First, he didn't bring the right delegation. Back at the burning bush in chapter 3, Yahweh told Moses, quote, then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt. But we just saw that it was Moses and Aaron that went to Pharaoh. Maybe the elders chickened out. Maybe Moses didn't insist that they go along. We don't know why, but it's clear that the elders weren't there. Second, Moses didn't use the words that God had given him. Back at the bush, God had instructed him, and say to him, to Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us, let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Now we can argue that Moses' words were directionally correct here, that, that they communicate the essence of the message, but we can also see that Moses changed the tone of the message and even some of the words. And he added words. He embellished the message. And we can see that the result was Pharaoh was offended. He was angered. And that brings us to the third thing. Moses didn't have the right expectations. God had already made it clear that Pharaoh was not going to say yes. He was not going to let the people go. Twice he told Moses that Pharaoh would not let the people go. Back in chapter 3, verse 19, and in chapter 4, verse 21. Hey, if you're looking for a discussion topic for lunch today, um, you might consider whether the order to give the straw would have been given if Moses had uh, followed God's script exactly. Or... Was this one of those times when the obstacle was actually God's plan? Well, regardless of of where you land on that, Moses' expectations were out of whack. And there's a lesson for us here. And it starts with selective hearing. If you're married or you have kids, you have probably accused someone of having selective hearing. If you were ever a kid, yourself, or if you are married, then you've probably, you've probably been accused of having selective hearing. Now, we can joke about that because we can all relate, right? It is a fact that some people only hear part of what you say. Well, some people only hear what they want to hear. And then there are those who hear you say one thing and interpret it as something else entirely. I think Moses may have been guilty of selective hearing, and that brought about some false expectations, which in turn led to a failure to obey completely. Alec, excuse me, Alec Motier puts it this way. It could be said that the root of all disaster in the Christian life is the failure to hear and believe that what the Word of God says and to act accordingly. Let me say that again. 
it could be said that the root of all disaster in the Christian life is the failure to hear and believe what the Word of God says and to act accordingly. We have to be careful with God's Word. Careful not just to hear what we want to hear or hear what we think we ought to hear or even to hear what someone else tells us we ought to hear. We need to hear God's Word precisely and completely. Right hearing will lead to right expectations, which in turn will lead to right actions. And that's what old-timers call obedience, a word that's sadly out of favor today. Now, in contrast to Moses' courageous faith, we have Pharaoh's rebellious unbelief. Rebellious unbelief is that natural state of everyone who does not know God. And in this regard, Pharaoh is the prototypical unbeliever. unbeliever. He may have been an extreme case because he, after all, was the ruler of the most powerful nation on earth. But the characteristics that he displayed can be seen in every unbeliever. All of us, every single one of us, start out as unbelievers. We're all just like Pharaoh. So what are some of these characteristics of unbelief? Well, first, there's ignorance. You know, there's an old adage, ignorance can be fixed, but there's no cure for stupid. Now, if ignorance couldn't be fixed, I wouldn't be a believer. In fact, there'd be no believers. By definition, the unbeliever does not know the Lord. And Pharaoh admitted this in so many words. Most of us today, most people today, do not enjoy a personal relationship with God. They don't know Him. And sadly, what most people do know about God has been twisted and perverted so grossly that they don't even desire to know God. Now, in his ignorance, Pharaoh believed that he was a god. And while most people today would not say, I'm a god, the majority still sit on the throne of their own life, just like Pharaoh did. Now, did you notice that Moses and Aaron walked into the palace and proclaimed, Thus says the Lord? Well, thus says is a contextual indicator that what follows is actually a divine decree. They used it in verse 1, and it's no coincidence that Pharaoh's messengers used the same indicator in verse 10. And this is nothing less than a flagrant, in-your-face taunt by Pharaoh. He means to show the Israelites that he is greater than Yahweh. Goran Larson writes about this, and says, the critical issue to be settled is nothing less than who is in charge, who has the authority over the people of Israel and ultimately over all nations and all of creation. The God of Israel or the gods of Egypt manifest in Pharaoh. The only possible remedy for ignorance is a personal encounter with God. And that was true for Pharaoh, and it's still true for us today. If the Lord is not on the throne of your life, then you are. 
If you're on the throne, it will not end well. If God has the power and the wisdom to govern the universe, then surely He has the wherewithal to govern my life and yours. In many ways, this ignorance resides in the intellectual realm. Does God exist? Is the Bible true? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is heaven real? Some folks who have these kind of questions can be persuaded when they're presented with the truth. But there are many who are happy in their ignorance, who will suppress the truth. And we see this in another characteristic of unbelief, and that is resistance to God's authority, or we could call it rebellion. Rebellion is mainly a spiritual issue, a, a moral issue. Pharaoh not only denied knowledge of Yahweh, he also stated emphatically that he would not obey Yahweh. And there's a reinforcing loop here. Ignorance of God produces rebellion, and the perceived benefits of rebellion encourage continued ignorance. Speaking of this ignorance-rebellion phenomenon, Philip Ryken says, Often what keeps people from God is their attachment to sin. It is hardly surprising for someone who is pursuing selfish ambition, indulging in sexual sin, or living for material gain to still have doubts about Jesus. Disobedience has a way of perpetuating ignorance. There is always, always an element of rebellion associated with unbelief. Pharaoh's resistance to God affected not only his life, but he also refused to let anyone else worship God. This was contrary to what we know historically about Egyptians. They were known for allowing their slaves to have time off to worship and to sacrifice to their gods. So we find Pharaoh's unbelief characterized by ignorance and rebellion and also by antagonism toward the people of God. Hmm, antagonism. Well, maybe we could call it malice. A, a vicious, a vindictive hatred of anyone and everyone associated with Yahweh. Pick up and let's read starting in verse 6. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people in their foremen, saying, You are no longer to give the straw, give the people straw to make bricks as previously. Have them go and gather straw for themselves. But you shall impose on them the quota of bricks which they were making before. You are not to reduce any of it. Because they are lazy. For that reason they cry out, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and have them work at it so that they will pay no attention to false words. Tyrants are prone to making bad decisions, especially when they're angry. Rash decisions often turn out to be self-destructive for those tyrants, but they usually end up hurting innocent people as well. 
Pharaoh had no care, no concern for the people. He didn't care about any suffering that he was causing. On the surface, it sounds like Pharaoh was primarily concerned with the ongoing work. But if that were so, why would he impair the worker's ability to produce by imposing impossible goals? And how would working harder keep them from wanting to worship their God? Pharaoh's purpose was not about the labor. It was to keep the people from worshiping Yahweh. The conclusion that we come to is that rebellion against Yahweh leads to oppression of Yahweh's people. This is the root cause of why Christians are persecuted. Now, persecution could be in the form of physical oppression, just like the Hebrews suffered at the hands of Pharaoh. And this still occurs in our world today. Just look at the voice of the martyrs, and you'll see many examples. But there are other forms of persecution and oppression, many of which are prevalent right around us. Speaking to this, Philip Ryken puts it this way. Usually the attacks are more subtle. Christian ideas are excluded from public education. The church is misrepresented by the media. Christians are mocked by their co-workers in the marketplace. The underlying reason for all this malevolence is unbelief. What makes non-Christians uncomfortable is not so much Christians or even Christianity, but Christ. When it comes to Christ, there are only two choices. Courageous faith or rebellious unbelief. Either we will serve God as Moses did, or we will serve ourselves as Pharaoh did. That brings us to our second point. Where sin and faith meet, there will be conflict. Let's read starting in verse 10. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people saying, this is what Pharaoh says. There's that, thus says, I am not going to give you any straw. You go, get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it. But none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through the land, all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters pressed them saying, Complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and asked, Why have you not completed your required task of making bricks, either yesterday or today as before? Things were bad for the Hebrews back in chapter 1. And then Moses returns with the good news that Yahweh is on the move. They're going to be freed. And they've just experienced this great time of worship. And then, boom, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Moses obeyed Yahweh. The people worshipped. And things got incredibly worse. In just five verses, we get a graphic picture of how tough Things were for these slaves. But the people should probably have expected Pharaoh to respond harshly. 
Surely they knew Pharaoh was not going to give up his workforce without a fight. Moses and Aaron had told them that God said Pharaoh wouldn't let them go right away. Like Moses, their expectations were out of whack. Selective hearing strikes again. Now there's a concept at work here that we see over and over in the Bible. And this, this was a new concept, though, to the Hebrews. In fact, they're one of the earlier examples of this. And the concept is simply this. Where sin and faith meet, there will be conflict. The interesting thing is that God often chooses conflict to test faith, to refine it, to, to, to prune it, to encourage it to grow. In fact, faith that isn't tested isn't going to grow. Well, where do we see this in Scripture? Well, how about Job? Satan claimed that Job's faith would die if life were not so easy for him. But Job's faith proved true through the testing. So much so that Job said in chapter 23, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. In the New Testament, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4 not to be surprised when painful trials come. He also compares our testing to the refining of gold. James says that we should count our trials, our testing, as pure joy. Hebrews reminds us that God is treating us as his children when we endure discipline. What's discipline? That's training. That's testing. In writing to the Thessalonians, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of two things that demonstrate the genuineness of their conversion. First, they recognized that what they had heard was the Word of God and not from man. And they suffered because they believed the Word of God. Their faith was tested. And how about Jesus himself in the parable of the sower? As he was explaining the parable to the disciples, he said, the one sown with seed on the rocky places, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution, testing, conflict, when that occurs... Because of the word, immediately he falls away from the faith. Scripture makes it clear that when the living word of God enters our hearts and lives in faith there, then we're going to have conflict with the world, with sin. The good news is that God can use that conflict to strengthen, to mold, to refine, and to teach us so that our faith grows. Thank God we have His Word to help us understand what's going on. Now this testing, this conflict, it can be outward and external, like what the Hebrews experienced at the hand of Pharaoh. It can be physical adversity or or difficult circumstances, but it can also be internal, like that sin that you just can't seem to shake. Or that temptation that you struggle with over and over and over. 
And then there's the oppression of the spiritual warfare that's going on around us all the time. We're going to see as we go through Exodus that the Israelites are on a journey of discovery. They're coming to know Yahweh. And Yahweh is going to test their young faith. He's going to nurture. He's going to discipline. And their faith is going to grow and mature. There's one more aspect of this conflict testing that we need to be aware of. God's people go through testing not only so that their faith grows, but also so that God can be glorified. You know, Exodus is a great salvation story because the Hebrew slaves were in such harsh conditions, right up to the time of their deliverance. The details of their suffering are recorded so that we might be able to see just how badly they needed saving and at the same time see just how great God's grace is. And we can't look at how badly the Israelites needed to be saved, how hopeless their situation was, without thinking about ourselves. Just as the Hebrew people were slaves to Pharaoh, so all people, from ancient times to today, are born slaves to sin. Just as God's grace was enough to free the Hebrews from Pharaoh, so too is His grace sufficient to free the most wretched slave from sin. Exodus paints a most beautiful picture of God's redemptive grace. Now when your faith meets the world of sin, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be trouble. So where do you turn when trouble comes? That's certainly a question facing the Israelites as they are forced to gather their own straw to make bricks. Their quota isn't reduced and they are threatened. They're abused. They're beaten. Let's see who they turn to. Pick up in verse 15. Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants. Yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks! And behold, your servants are being beaten. But it's the fault of your own people. But he said, You are lazy, very lazy. For that reason you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work. For you will be given no straw, but you must deliver the quota of bricks. The foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble since they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you because you have made us repulsive in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Well, So far in Exodus, we're getting a powerful picture of what it means to be enslaved. Pharaoh demands more and more of the people, and he gives them less and less. In John 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said this, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Just like Pharaoh, Satan, by enslaving people through sin, demands more 
and more and gives less and less in return. The Israelites had the promise of freedom set before them and yet they turned right back to Pharaoh as soon as things got difficult. We'll see this behavior again and again. Even after Pharaoh has been defeated and the people are free from Egypt. We see here too that rather than coming to God as they did in chapter 2, they go to Pharaoh and beg for their burden to be made easier. Now did you catch how they referred to themselves? Pharaoh's servants. And they did that three times in just a couple of verses. Now remember, serve and servant can also be interpreted as worship and worshiper. Now looking back from our vantage point, it's easy for us to say, how can they worship God one day and then like the very next day go in and and prostrate themselves before Pharaoh and say, we are your servants. We worship you. The foreman had a very clear choice. They could turn to Pharaoh or they could turn to Yahweh. They had a choice and they blew it. They chose poorly. But they're still learning. And they're learning that sometimes the lessons can be very harsh. Realistically, they should have known better. Yahweh had appointed Moses and Aaron to be their representatives. These foremen overstepped their authority by approaching Pharaoh directly. And on top of that, Pharaoh was the problem not the solution. There was absolutely no hope in appealing to Pharaoh. God had already told them that he would deliver them from Pharaoh. Yet another case of selective hearing. I can prove that. Look at what God said to Moses in chapter 3. And and these are all things that Moses was supposed to tell the people. In in verse 8, I have come down to deliver, said the Lord. In 17, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. In 19 and 20, God says, Pharaoh will not permit you to leave. So I will stretch out my mighty hand. Yahweh made it crystal clear that only He can liberate Israel from slavery. And in the same way, it's crystal clear that only God can deliver a sinner from the bondage of sin. But it's, it's our nature. I, I know it's my nature to, to return to what we know, to, to go back to what's familiar. And that's why the foreman went back to Pharaoh. They've been slaves for 400 years. This is why even after coming to Christ, especially for the new, newly converted. When, when we encounter a difficulty, when that conflict occurs, our first impulse is to go back to the old ways. How we dealt with things before. And that could be by blaming others. That could be by self-pity. It, it could be substance abuse. There can be, and often there is, a very strong very strong temptation to return to bondage. 
But God has the power to free us, and He also has the power to keep us free. So where will you turn? To the one who wants to keep you captive, or to the one who sets you free and will keep you free? Trouble has come, and the foreman chose to appeal to Pharaoh. They're rebuked by Pharaoh with no relief from their burdens. And the men leave the palace, and they run into Moses and Aaron. Now, there's some ambiguity in how to interpret this waiting for. Um, It could be interpreted that Moses and Aaron were waiting for the men to come out, or it could be that vice versa that the men were waiting for Moses and Aaron to come along. Regardless, the foremen, when they met Moses and Aaron, they lit into them, blaming them for the troubles that have come upon the people. And more than just chewing them out, these men are calling for divine judgment upon Moses and Aaron. In, In effect, they're calling down a curse on them. Could it have been part of Pharaoh's plan all along to turn the people against Moses and Aaron? Maybe so. If it was, it sure seems to be working. Now, taking out their fear and anger on Moses and Aaron, that's a completely natural response. And from a human standpoint, it was even justified. After all, it it really was Moses' fault. But there was something else that they could have done. Something else that they should have done. They should have done what Moses did. Let's read verses 22 and 23. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. Sometimes things don't work out like we hope or like we dream or like we plan. Sometimes things happen like our worst case imaginings. And that's where Moses is here. Pharaoh wouldn't listen to him and threw him out of the palace. And now the Israelites have rejected him. He did what God told him to do. And things not only didn't get better, they got way worse. His worst fears are coming true. Has that ever happened to you in your Christian walk? I bet it has. You try to do the right thing at work, and instead of being commended, you end up getting in trouble. Or maybe you're trying to share the gospel with your neighbor, and they listen politely, but then they tell you, I'm not really that interested. You remain acquaintances, but the relationship stagnates. You never do become dear, trusted friends. What do you do when things aren't working like you hoped? What do you do when trouble comes? Well, what we should do is do what Moses did. Moses returned to the Lord. He took his disappointment. He took his hurt feelings. He he took his frustrations. He took his love for his people. He took his distress at their suffering. 
He took all of that and more and he went to the Lord. And he complained. Notice how many times he says, you? Why have you done evil? Why did you send me? You have not delivered your people. It's your fault. Moses blamed God for causing trouble, the bricks without straw, and for breaking his promise to save the people. In effect, Moses was saying, why did you bring this trouble upon us? Why aren't you doing anything to get us out of it? As great a man as we know Moses to be, this just goes to show that he was just a man. Just a man like us. Before we cast too many stones at Moses for for complaining to God, let's look at this just a little bit closer. Moses wasn't really complaining on his own behalf. He's interceding for his people. Sure, he's confused by how God is working this out, and he's concerned about the continued oppression by Pharaoh. And so he goes to God on behalf of the people. Here's another way that Moses points us to Jesus. Moses was the spiritual representative of the people. He was their representative to God. And that's just what Jesus is for us. He's our intercessor. We could spend man, we could spend another hour right here just with this. But let me try and summarize it. Intercession like this is only possible when God's grace is at work in a person. When that grace is at work in you, then you have the privilege of interceding for those that are under your spiritual care. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's folks at work. Maybe it's people in your Bible study or your community group. Maybe it's the people that you're in ministry with. Maybe it's your brothers and sisters in church. Moses gives us a great example of intercessory prayer here. But the most exceptional thing that he did, the most important thing that he did, was just simply going straight to God. Remember how timidly Moses approached the burning bush? Well, compare that to how quickly and how unabashedly Moses goes to God here. We should have that kind of response. Moses went to God with questions, and that's, that's okay. Moses certainly did. You know what? Abraham, he went to God with questions. Job had questions. David had questions. Jeremiah, John the Baptist went to Jesus with his question. And Jesus himself on the cross went to God the Father with his question. If we have questions, we should bring them to God. We should bring them honestly and openly, earnestly, and we should wait patiently Oh, that's the hard part. Wait patiently for Him to answer. 
the best thing that we can do is talk things over with God. He listens and he answers. That's what he did for Moses. Let's look at one more verse and we'll close with this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. Would you stand and join me in prayer? Great God, our Heavenly Father, Lord, you are the faithful one. You do all that you promise. Your ways are full of grace and strength. But Lord, like Moses and the Hebrews, we often don't understand the why and the how. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you when we doubt, when we're troubled, when we don't understand. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you that your love manifests itself in, in great patience with us and in a strong desire for our faith to grow. Help us, Lord, to exercise the faith that we have, that it would grow stronger. And Lord, would you give us the grace to endure the conflict that surely comes as we live in a fallen world, that our faith in you would increase and bear witness to those around us. Be with us, Lord, as we go from here. Bless us so that we might be a blessing from you to others. In the strong and precious name of our Savior, even Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.